The grand opening of the Ankh-Morpork and Stowe Plains Hygienic Railway brought the international press out in droves. Dick Simnel had always intended that the first serious public railway journey would start from Stowe Lat, putting the old town on the map, as it were. Sir Harry was somewhat dismayed by this, a dismay shared by many of the journalists, who worried that they would get mud on their new shoes and be attacked by pheasants. A true denizen of Ankh-Morpork, he tended to get a little disoriented when outside the city. Still, as Moist had pointed out, after an outward journey by road, the guests would find the return rail trip with refreshments all the more impressive. When their coaches eventually arrived at what the gold-edged invitation had described as the Stowe-Lat Terminus, the journalists and other invited guests discovered that Terminus apparently meant a work in progress, which is to say most of it wasn't there yet, being full of workmen, human, troll and goblin, labouring at cross-purposes just like on every big construction site anywhere. But nevertheless, a sympathetic eye could arrive at the conclusion that something rather good was being built here. The guests were ushered onto a long raised platform, standing above gleaming steel rails that ran off into the distance, the track sides crowded with onlookers. In the other direction, the rails led to a very large barn, where Dick's apprentices, recently scrubbed, were lined up on either side of the closed doors, along with a brass band that could hardly be heard above the noise of the workmen. Moist von Lipwig was, of course, master of ceremonies, there to welcome them with Harry King and Effie by his side. Lord Vetinari too was there as holder of Ankh-Morpork's guardian share in the railway, accompanied by Drumnot, who wouldn't have missed the occasion for a big clock. And Queen Kelly of Stowlat, protector of the eight protectorates and empress of the long, thin, debated piece Hubwoods of Stowkerrig, was present to give the occasion the royal seal of approval, with the mayor by her side looking stunned by the circus that appeared to have taken over his town. As always in these matters, everything had to wait until everything else was ready. That seemed to have been anticipated, judging by the door with a neat label, Waiting Room, alongside the entrance to the platform. There were, in fact, two waiting rooms, one for men and families, and the other for single ladies. As predicted, Effie was very firm that all aspects of the railway should be clean and wholesome, indeed hygienic, something she was very keen on. And then the waiting was over. At Moist's invitation, Queen Kelly stepped forward to drive in the Golden Spike, the last one on the line, signifying it was now open for business. The chuffing sound that was the signature tune of the railway got louder and more expansive. The crowd of bystanders thronging the sides of the track waved their colourful little flags and cheered with increased enthusiasm, and two apprentices opened the gates of the barn. To a metaphorical drumroll, Moist announced, "'Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dick Simnel and Iron Gerda!' Leading the dream of steam, Dick Simnel, in pride of place on the footplate, beamed an unmissable look of I told thee so. Behind the engine, ten carriages bumped along, and glory be, some of them even had a roof. The iconographer's flashes popped, and, very gently, Iron Gerda moved along the track and stopped beside the platform. Moist waited until the applause faded away and said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, you may safely climb aboard. There will be refreshments.' but first may I invite you to inspect the carriages. Now Moist needed to be everywhere at once. Anything to do with steam and locomotives was news, and news could be good news or news could be bad news, or occasionally news could be malicious news. 
Dick just loved talking about iron girder and everything else to do with locomotion, but he was a straightforward man, and the press of the Stowe Plains could eat up for lunch a straightforward man if he wasn't careful. Moist, on the other hand, in the vicinity of the press, was as straightforward as a sackful of kaleidoscopes. While the chattering was going on, he did his best to hover around Dick Simnel like a wet nurse. The Ankh-Morpork Times wasn't bad, and the Tanty Bugle was mostly interested in horrible murder and the more salacious aspects of the human condition. But Moist's heart sank as he realised that Dick, temporarily off the reins, was now talking to Hardwick of the Pseudopolis Daily Press, who was adept at getting the wrong end of the stick very much on purpose and then hitting people over the head with it, and Pseudopolis disliked Ankh-Morpork with a sullen and jealous vengeance. As Moist executed the world's fastest nonchalant walk, he heard Hardwick saying, "'What do you say, Mr Simnel, to people who are upset "'because the noise and the smoke will cause their horses to bolt "'and their cows and sheep to miscarry?' "'I don't rightly know,' said Simnel. "'Never had a problem here on the plains. "'When I were doing me tests, "'the horses in the next field would try to outpace Iron Girder, "'racing her, as it were, and I reckon they thought it was fun.' "'But Hardwick wasn't to be thrown off. "'You must admit, Mr Simnel, that the train is inherently dangerous.' Some people have said that your face melts if you reach speeds greater than 30 miles an hour. It seemed to Moist that everyone else who had been chattering away in the vicinity went silent to listen as one person, and he knew that if he intervened at this point, things would get worse, and so all he could do was hold his breath, just like everybody else, to see what the solemn country boy would say. "'Well now, Mr Hardwick,' said Simnel, sticking his thumbs into his belt as he always did when broaching long sentences. I think many things are inherently dangerous, such as wizards and trees, dangerous things, trees, they could fall down and drop straight on your head without you knowing it. And boats are dangerous and all, and other people might be dangerous, and you, Mr Hardwick, you've been talking to me for five minutes now, hoping that a country lad like me might be tempted into saying something I shouldn't. So I'll tell you this. Iron Girder is my machine. I made her, every single bit of her, I tested her, and every time I find a way to make her better and safer, I do it. But, oh, I, you, Mr. Hardwick, you might be dangerous. Power is dangerous, all power, yours included, Mr. Hardwick. And the difference is that the power of Iron Girder is controllable, whereas you can write whatever you damn well like. Do you think I don't read? I've read the rubbish that you spout in your paper— and, Mr. Hardwick, a lot of what you write is flaming gristle, Mr. Hardwick. Total, stinking, made-up gristle, meant to frighten people who don't know out about steam and power and the cosines and the quadratics and tangents and even the sliding rule. But I hope you enjoy your journey anyway, Mr. Hardwick. Now, if you don't mind, I've got to get in cab. Oh, and I've had Iron Girder up to more than thirty mile an hour, and all I got was sunburn. Good day to you, Mr. Hardwick. Enjoy your ride. And then, reddening as he registered the hush all around him, Simnel said, "'Apologies to all the ladies here for my straight language. I do beg your pardon.' "'No apologies necessary, Mr. Simnel,' called out Sacharissa Cripslock, reporter for the Times. "'I believe I speak for all the ladies present when I say that we appreciate your candour.' And since Sacharissa was not only respectable in the same way that other people are religious, but was also invariably armed with highly sharpened pencils— the rest of the crowd suddenly found that they too had the greatest admiration for Mr. Simnel and his plain talking. 
On board, there were many marvels to show off, including the lavish lavatories, apparently another brainchild of Effie, which came as a surprise even to Moist. He wondered what the press would make of Effie's gift to railway travel. Sometimes the art editor of the Ankh-Morpork Times could be quite creative. The caption, as it turned out, was, Let the train take the strain. It appeared that Mr. DeWord and his wife were very impressed with the toilet facilities. "'This is as good as those they have in the poshest hotels,' Moist said privately to Sir Harry, who emerged in a cubicle flushed with pride. Harry beamed. "'You should look in the ladies, Mr. Litvig. Scent, cushions and real cut flowers. It's like a boudoir in there.' "'I suppose the uh, waste can be dropped straight down onto the tracks, eh, Harry?' Harry looked shocked. "'Oh, some people would do that, but not Harry King. "'Where there's muck, there's money, lad. "'But don't tell the Duchess. "'There's a big cistern under one of the carriages. "'Waste not, want not.' "'Questions were coming thick and fast from all sides. "'For those people who hadn't already taken a ride behind Iron Gerda "'in Harry King's compound, the matter of railway etiquette loomed. "'Could you stick your head out of the window? "'Could you bring your pet swamp dragon if it sat on your knee? "'Could you go and talk to the driver?' On this occasion, Moist was pleased to say yes, the editor of the Ankh-Morpork Times being selected for this accolade. The smile Mr. DeWord gave as he stepped on the platform onto the footplate cemented this moment onto the front page, assuming this journey was a success, although you had to be aware that it would also make the front page if the engine blew up. Journalism was, well, after all, journalism. The train pulled away with a whistle and a cloud of smoke, and everything was moving along nicely, especially when the trolley with the refreshments rattled through the carriages. Harry and all Jolson were in complete agreement about what made a good meal, namely calories, and had not stinted. There was enough butter on the slumpy to re-grease iron girder from top to bottom. The scenery flew past to the guests' well-oiled admiration and gasps of awe until the train approached the first bridge. Moist held his breath as the train slowed down almost to a halt. There was a troll, and he waved a big red flag and cheerfully announced, and when a troll announces you really are announced at, that he and his gang had worked on this bridge and were so pleased to see it being used and thank you for coming, ladies and gentlemen. There was laughter, assisted most certainly with alcohol, but nevertheless there was laughter and it was genuine. Moist let the breath go. He supposed few of the passengers could remember the days when to see a troll was to be frightened or, if you were a dwarf, want to kick his ankles in. Now, here they were, building the railway quite at home. Moist looked across the first-class carriage to where Lord Vetinari was seated. He had openly commended Effie on her part in the planning and design, and given his usual urbane, anodyne answers to journalists looking for a quote. But Moist couldn't help but notice that the patrician was smiling, like a granddad at a newborn grandchild. Moist caught his eye, and thought he saw his lordship wink with the speed of a cyclone. Moist nodded, and that was that, but he hoped that it might be at least one sin forgiven. Three deaths in one lifetime would definitely be over-egging it. But it was a nice day, the sun was shining, and as Iron Gerda raced along the track, a couple of horses in the field alongside tried to catch up with her. So much for Mr. Hardwick, and poo to him again because Iron Gerda chugged her way down through gentle slopes to the township of Upunder, where they stopped to allow the passengers to enjoy the very best of Brassica hospitality. After that it was a short run down to Ankh-Morpork itself, which was beckoning with long smoky fingers. 
they crossed the new iron bridge over the Ank and wheezed on to Harry King's compound, where a brass band was playing the national anthem, We Can Rule You Wholesale, to the cheers of the waiting crowd. At the banquet that evening, the rail travellers were joined by other Ankh-Morporkian and Stowe Plains dignitaries and in the peroration of his address, Sir Harry announced that the next city to receive the magnificent railway would be Quirm, it was hoped very shortly. In the thunder of applause, Harry toasted the Quirmian ambassador, Monsieur Cravat, and this was followed by more toasts, including one to Iron Gerda herself. Lord Veterinari opined that it had been a very helpful day, and the unknown quantity of sphincters that had been tightened once again relaxed somewhat. When the party broke up, some of the guests were walking sideways or hardly at all. Dick, seeing a familiar face swim into his happy world of coloured lights, said, "'Eh, that were champion, Mr Lippig. All those tiny places in the distance, all along track. I were thinking that the railway could be like a tree, you know, one big trunk and then all the branches. You'd make em cheap and small, but I reckon people'd like em. "'Make folks' lives easier if they could get a train from anywhere.' Moist, resolutely ignoring the beckoning possibilities, cut him short. Steady on, Dick. First we have to get to Querm, and then drive that express train route to Uberwald, he added to himself. His lordship was so very keen on international relations. Later that night, Fred Colon and Nobby Nobbs proceeded in a policeman-like fashion around the railway compound. After all, they bore the majesty of the force and therefore had a right to be absolutely anywhere they liked, looking at anything they wanted to. And as their boots swung in unison, Fred Colon said, I hear they're taking the railway all the way to Quirm. My old woman's always going on at me about us taking a holiday down there. You'll know about that, Nobby, now you're practically married and got responsibilities. But you know me, I'm allergic to all that avec and I hear you can't get a good paint there for love or money. Actually, said Nobby, it ain't all that bad. When I was working the rota last week on the goods yard, there were a load of cheeses that got broken out by accident, as it were. Of course, they couldn't be sent back, and it's amazing what Shine of the Rainbow can do with cheese. It's good stuff, especially with snails. Nobby realised he was talking treason, and so hurriedly added, Their beer is still like piss, though. Fred Colon nodded. All was what it should be. He glanced back at his friend and said, If the railway works properly, things are going to be quite different. I hear telling the trade'll be going very fast, and that means if a bloke does a robbery and then goes and catches the train, he could be away on his toes long before we could ever catch up with him. Maybe the railway will need policemen. You never know. It's like old Stoneface said, Wherever you get people, you'll get crime, and then you'll get policemen. Nobby Nobbs considered this information like a goat chewing the cud, and said, "'Well, you go and tell old Vimesy that you want to be the first railway policeman, eh? I'd love to see his face.' Billy Slick surveyed the very large person at the front of the queue and sighed. "'Look,' he said, "'you can't all be train drivers. We've got lots of train drivers right now, and it takes time to work your way up to being a driver. Ain't there anything else you can do?' Well, said the crestfallen lad in front of him, my mum says I'll make a very good cook one day. Billy smiled and said, Might have something for you then. We need cooks. 
He pointed out another recruiting table a bit further along and said, Get yourself over to Mabel. She's looking for catering stuff and that sort of thing. The young man's face lit up with excitement, and he hurried off to a future which almost certainly included unsociable hours and hard labour in cramped conditions, but most importantly, unlimited free rides on the wonder of the age. I'm a painter, mister, said the next man in Billy's line. Excellent. Sure you don't fancy being a train driver? No, not really. I've always been a good painter, and I expect the locomotives need painting. Great, said Billy. You're hired. Next. When Billy looked up from his clipboard, he found the craggy figure of a young troll looming over him. Man said there's a job with a shovel and tons of coal. Could do that, the troll said, adding a hopeful, please. A stalker, Billy guessed. Blimey, you're a bit big for the footplate, but we could use you around the place and no mistake. Put your mark here. The table shook as the troll's thumb hit the form and cracked his clipboard. Good man, I mean troll, Billy said. Nothing to worry about. Get that all the time. The troll rumbled away in the direction of the coal store, and his place in front of Billy was taken by a smartly dressed young lady with an air of authority. Sir, I think the railway is going to need a translator. I know every language and dialect on the disc. Her voice was firm, but there was a glint of excitement in her eyes as she looked at Iron Gerda and the other engines in the compound, and Billy knew she was hooked. He also knew that Translator was not on his list of vacancies and sent her off to Sir Harry's office while he returned to his search for shunters, tappers and other workers. And so the line moved on again. It seemed everybody wanted to be part of the railway. It felt to Moist, bumping in the saddle as the golem horse bore him back towards Ankh-Morpork, that he had been talking for years with greedy landowners who were asking for enormous rents, even if it was achingly obvious that the railway would benefit the whole area. And this time, to reach Querm, there was going to be more than eight times the length of route to cover. And when he wasn't talking to landowners, he was talking again to the surveyors, who were not greedy, but were definitely horribly precise. They rejected proposed routes as too steep, too waterlogged, crumbling, or occasionally flooded, and in one case, full of zombies. Acceptable routes might just as well have been drawn by a snake snaking around the landscape from suitable ground to suitable ground. And everybody wanted the railway close. Oh, yes, please, but not so close that they could hear it or smell it. And that was the Stow Plains in a nutshell, or, if you like, a cabbage bucket. Everybody everywhere wanted the benefits of the steam, but not the drawbacks and no city on the plains wanted the big wahoonie to get more than its fair share. It took the diplomatic genius of the patrician to set the record straight, reminding them that although the railway was being built initially in Ankh-Morpork, if other cities and towns wanted to partake of its usefulness, well, yes, in a sense, it would be theirs, because what goes down on the upline must go up on the downline. Politics? Vetinari loved it. This was the ocean in which he swam. But assuredly, you never crowed, just showed the world the tired visage of a conscientious civil servant, doing things cheaply and with the minimum of fuss. He had long ago perfected the art of giving away with a smile when engaged in complex negotiations. But Lord Vetinari's smile was that of a man who knows that his opponents have yet to find, metaphorically speaking, and despite their cleverness, that their underpants are now down around their ankles and their backside on show for all to see. Ankh-Morpork to Stolat was becoming a regular journey, 
and it was working now. Moist had written the slogan, you don't have to live in Ankh-Morpork to work in Ankh-Morpork, and properties in Stolat were becoming quite sought after. The idea of a little place in the country away from the big city, but with acceptable communications to Ankh-Morpork, suddenly looked very inviting. The hours of travel on the Golem horse were proving altogether conducive to creative thought. His mind was filling up with the world of locomotive possibilities at the speed of a hamster really at odds with its treadmill. Another synapse in Moist's head flashed. The trains were just the start. The railway now, he knew, was something in the ether, floating over the whole world, an ide fix, if he would excuse his own quermian. Nevertheless, the engines remained important. Dick Simnel's workshops at Swinetown had been turning out many marvels, carefully placed on wagons behind the never-tiring iron girder. She now shared the big shed with two newcomers that Simnel had called the Flyers, which made the regular run to Stow Lat and back, while Iron Gerda herself had gone back to giving rides around the Ankh-Morpork compound, extended with a short loop along the river to show off the new bridge. The small but growing band of patient train spotters had written down a number two in their little books, then a number three. Within minutes of his arriving back in Ankh-Morpork, Moist was borne off by an ebullient Harry to see the latest development. Dodging sparks, they arrived at the doorway of the monstrous engine shed guarded by one of Harry's heavies, who glared even at his employer. He looked human, or at least humanoid, and Harry introduced him merely as Trouble. Trouble, glaring at Moist, moved away from the door so that Moist and Sir Harry could go inside. Moist could feel Trouble's glare on the back of his neck as he walked through and asked, Harry, does Trouble have an official watch record? Harry King stared for a moment at Moist and said, Of course he's got a watch record, he's a security guard, and I need him. People have been hanging around trying to break in, especially at night, and the official security, the watch, the golems and guard dogs, generates a whole lot of paperwork, whereas Trouble deals with trouble. Don't trouble trouble, and trouble won't trouble you, as my granny always said. Harry chuckled and added, Don't you worry, Mr Lipvig, I've expressly told him not to kill you, today. Moist took this under advisement and turned for a last brief look at Trouble, who made up a new scowl just for him, a reminder that there were oh so many painful things you could do to a person without actually killing them. Harry nodded to the giant who began to pull at a large tarpaulin in the middle of the floor, and clearly when Trouble pulled something it definitely remained pulled, to reveal an engine much larger than Iron Girder or any of Simnel's creations Moist had so far seen. Harry slapped Moist on the back and said, Well now, Mr Lipvig, while you've been whining and dining with the knobs and diddling them out of their fortunes, I, and of course Mr Simnel, have been very busy boys, oh yes indeedy. The lad is up finishing off in the drawing office right now, but this new engine is the bee's knees, I don't mind telling you. It's not exactly fun what I've been doing, began Moist indignantly, but Harry cut in. Yeah, I know, we're all doing our bit towards veterinary's dash for Quirm, although personally I don't have much time for the lobsters. But I can see it's showing the flag of Ankh-Moor pork and all that, and of course, if we can get really fresh fish and seafood into the city, then we'll be on the hog's back, or as they'd say, the snail's shell. And Dick says this new baby, he slapped the gleaming sides of the new engine as though it were a prize racehorse, 
We'll haul more freight and get there more quickly than any of the others. Moist thought about this and said, You know what? I bet you that as soon as our boy Simnel finishes this new flyer, he'll make sure that Ein Gerda goes just that little bit faster. Harry, he's not going to let her be eclipsed, even if it means constant tinkering until she's up to scratch. There's so many workers on the job these days, he spends most of his time on her in any case. She's the prototype of all of them, and he keeps changing the prototype. And he wants to walk out with our Emily. Well, he's a smart lad, and she'll always know where he is. The thought flitted across Moist's mind. I wonder what Ein Gerda thinks about that. And even as he dismissed the ridiculous notion, he fancied he could hear a slight hiss. Harry was still admiring the latest locomotive. I reckon the lobsters will be like chien with deux tails to be the first real foreigners to have the famous railway. And our Emily tells me that the quermian for railway means card game. So that would be right up your ruelle, yes? Make sure you keep an ace up your manche, Mr Lipvig, OK? Manche? Effie is learning me to talk lobster. She thinks it's a lovely and romantic language. Moist was moved to point out that he had hardly seen his own wife in the last month and had completed over fifty complex negotiations just to get to the border with Quirm. Capital! So you've really got your eye in now, yes? Anyway, Quirm ain't so far away and you'll enjoy the sunshine when you get there. And I'll tell you what, before you go you can have a day off in lieu and I don't say that to many people. Moist cleared his throat. Actually, uh, Harry, you don't in fact employ me. The city does. Does that mean I can't sack you? I'm afraid so, Harry. Harry snorted with laughter. I hate having people around I can't sack. It's unnatural. It had been a long day, after some long weeks and even longer months, and that evening Moist was grateful to step into his own house, looking forward to his big four-poster bed, which had a mattress that wasn't stuffed with straw, and pillows, actual pillows. Very few of the hostelries that Moist had stayed at during his travels considered pillows necessary or useful. Right now, metaphorically singing, he let himself in before Crostick could get there and went not into the main part of the house, but into the little corridor that led to Adora Bell's study, where his beloved was talking to Of the Twilight the Darkness. The Clax was an equal opportunities employer, especially when it came to people who could swarm their way up the skeletal ribs of a clax tower and, once at the top, sit down in a little chair and code like a demon without actually being one despite their appearance. Adorabelle was going through clax reports with a suspicious eye while the goblin crouched like a nightmare on the end of her desk. She waved her fingers to indicate that she couldn't afford to let go her concentration, then rolled up a script, handed it to the goblin and snapped, Get that out now, please, to Tower 97. Someone there isn't coding accurately. Might be a trainee. I want to know, OK? The goblin snatched the scroll in a claw, sprang off the desk like a frog, headed for a little door near the floor and disappeared through it. Moist could hear rattling all the way up the wall as the goblin clambered up the panelling and scuttled to the private clax tower on the roof. He shuddered. But before he could say anything, Adorabelle looked up and said, Look, he's punctual, fast, reliable, and codes more accurately even than me, and all he wants from us is to be allowed to live with his family on the roof. Now, don't you give me all that again about being traumatised by seeing the picture of a grinning goblin in that children's book when you were little, OK? Get over it, Moist. 
The goblins are the best thing that has happened to the clack since, well, you know, us. They love running it, and what's more, with them around the place we don't have those nasty rat and mouse infestations we used to have. Adorabel stood up, walked around the desk to Moist, and gave him a big kiss, and said, How was your latest marathon, mister? I got reports of your progress throughout, of course, as you may imagine. Moist took a step back. Reports? How? Adorabel laughed. What is a clax tower but an enormous watchtower? And every claxman has a very expensive pair of Herr Fleiss's binoculars, made using the very best in Überwald technology. There are lots of towers, so I made certain they kept a friendly eye on you. Well, a lot of friendly eyes on you. After all, every claxman knows your face, and even the top of your head. And I thought it was my duty as a wife. What, spying on your husband? "'Supposing I was messing about with other women?' "'That's all right. I know you weren't. "'And if you had been, I'd have had you killed. "'No offence meant. "'But you didn't, and so I didn't, and so everything's all right, yes? "'Mrs. Crossley is doing a wonderful beef and oyster pie, see? "'Aren't you glad I knew exactly when you were coming home?' "'Moist smiled, and then the smile broadened "'as he realised what it was he had been told, "'and he added thoughtfully, "'Are you telling me, my love?' "'that you could spot and follow anybody?' "'Oh, yes, probably, if they walk around a lot. "'The lads and lasses often peek when they have some downtime. "'They just do it, there's no harm in it. "'The other day when you were heading home "'I was at the Grand Trunk office "'and was privileged to get a report of you "'bobbing up and down on your golem horse. "'Very fetching,' they said. "'Adora Bell stared at her husband and added, "'Do you know?' "'that when you found out something amazingly interesting and useful, "'your eyes light up like a hogswatch decoration. "'So stop glittering right now and go and smarten yourself up "'before we sit down to a proper dinner.'